Hello and welcome to the Majlis Podcast Radio Free Europe Radio Liberties Current Affairs Talk Show focusing on Central Asia. I'm Mohammed Tahir, host of the Majlis and Radio Free Europe Radio Liberties Media Manager here in Washington DC. The presence of ISK in Afghanistan and the role of Central Asian militants within the group has been a time bomb that many considered is going to test the relative calm that Taliban claim to have achieved in the country. There are growing attacks on minorities in Afghanistan, particularly the ones targeting Hazara community has been already called a huge fraction now the ice claimed attack last month on Uzbekistan takes the threat to a whole new level in which ISK says they have fired 10 rockets across the border on military installations in Uzbekistan Tashkent denies the report but if a flurry of activities by Uzbek military at and across the border is any indication there is certainly something to be looked at in the meantime ISK claimed attacks comes following intensified online threats by the group against Central Asian authorities in this episode of the Majlis podcast we are here to discuss what just happened at the border and what does it mean going forward to discuss all these i'm joined by lucas weber a researcher focused on geopolitics and violent non-state actors who is the co-founder and editor of militant wire Dr. Jennifer Murtazashvili, Associate Professor at University of Petersburg and the Director of the Center for Governance in Markets, Nobahar Imamova, Senior Uzbek Journalist with Voice of America's Uzbek Service, and Bruce Panier, the author of Radio Free the Liberty's Central Asia in Focus weekly newsletter. Thank you, colleagues, for joining us on this important conversation. So let's start with you, Lucas. Uh, so what just happened on ap- April 18th? ISK says they fired 10 rockets to Uzbekistan, and Tashkent says it's a lie. So you have been studying this uh, vigorously. So what was your finding? What just happened? Regarding the the event itself, on April 18th, the Islamic State Central Media released a statement claiming responsibility for a rocket attack targeting Uzbekistan. And they also released a photo of the attacker as well as a actual video of the rocket launch. Initially, both the Uzbek government and the Taliban denied the attack. However, shortly after, as you mentioned, video began circulating online showing heavy air activity on the Uzbek side of the border. And another video actually was released and showed the rocket launch location and the launcher was still in place. So, And then the Taliban representative said that they arrested suspects yeah. in relation to the incident. This confirms that something actually happened. And there's no real evidence that the rocket attack reached the military position that it claimed to be aiming for. Mm. Yet the operation is still significant as it is the first official Islamic State claimed attack targeting Uzbekistan. And it also represents a clear escalation beyond the recently intensifying hostile rhetoric directed at Tashkent, and it signals an operational shift towards actually targeting Uzbekistan, something we could see more of in the future. And recent Islamic State media releases have celebrated this attack. They've celebrated the attacker, and they've aggressively promoted more attacks and promised to attack Uzbekistan in the future. Yeah. ISK might be, you know, claiming this, but on the other side, Uzbekistan says it's a lie. So, Nobahar, what you have been hearing from Tashkent about this? From what I have gathered so far, uh, Mohammed, you know, Tashkent 
as you know, is not used to admitting things, at least right away. So they know that things are happening, at least on the other side of the border. They do not deny that. They don't deny that there are forces, militants specifically, who are trying to target uh, Uzbek military installations on this side of Am- Amudaryo. But as far as the Uzbek security officials are concerned specifically, and then the presidential administration, president's office, everything is come on the Uzbek side. No attack has been registered. There is no case of emergency in, in Termez, which, as you know, is quite a populated area. Termez is a city of 150,000 people. It's industrial. Um, There is a lot of industry along the border. There are 17 neighborhoods, mahalas, across uh, along the border. And it's not a very long border, as you know. It's less than 150 kilometers. And it's a pretty open place. So what is really curious for me as a journalist, and I've been there several times lately, if something happened, let's say, if there is any kind of an attack, we would hear from others as well that's that's mystifying for me you know we've i've been talking to surhandaria officials in various like local you know municipalities nobody notices anything nobody Mm. sees anything nobody records anything they basically all say hey it's all come we we trust the government and we know that the government you know when when the government says everything is under control it also means that they could be controlling Mm. uh whatever is happening on the Mm. ground Mm. so Mm. we we do not have any proof that shows that the Uzbek side has experienced anything, you know, major or anything extraordinary, anything that that they define as uh, as an attack. Yeah, they say that, Nobahar, but at the same time, following those reports, we have seen this flurry of military activities at the border and across the border by Uzbek soldiers. Like you might have seen the videos that we have all seen on social media in which a number of military helicopters claim it to be coming from Uzbekistan are flying over Hyroton clearly on the Afghan side of the border. So, I mean, that says something, right? Although Uzbek authorities say, mm, no, don't worry, nothing happened. But, you know, you also see you that. Know, what I'm expecting, Mohammed, hmm. I think eventually they'll come up with a statement some kind of an explanation of some kind of a, you know, special operation. I don't want to get into any speculations here. You know, we've seen a lot of shots of the military and there is a military presence in the border. There is a huge, uh, you know, military uh, contingent there. There is, there is, that's, that's a fact. And also we have, uh, you know, Air Force next door in Kashkadaria, thousands of officers there and servicemen there. So, and, you know, and Termas has always had a military presence. There are a lot of them along the border so if there is something again happening you know in terms of like operations against these let's say terrorist attacks we will eventually hear about it but i don't think if anything happened let's assume tashkent is not admitting it at least now yeah uh, jennifer uh, you know the border from both sides you've been to afghanistan and that particular part of the afghan land and also on the uzbek side so when you look into all the evidences that we have seen so far what does your gut feeling tells you what might have just happened here you know i think what's significant about this isn't necessarily what happened or what mm. didn't happen mm. but the messaging and mm. if we look at the really incredible work that lucas has done you know chronicling 
calling the statements of ISK in yeah. Uzbek. This is new. The language, the rhetoric, whether or not this attack has happened or not, the way that they have said it has happened, to me is almost irrelevant. What is changing is that I think we're seeing ISK consolidate. I think we're seeing different groups really take aim at the Uzbek government in ways they haven't. So, you know, if we assume that something did happen over the past two weeks, I'm trying to recall if there were ISK attacks from Afghanistan into Uzbekistan during the 20 years that the U.S., during the period of the military presence. I can't think of, of uh, Bruce, maybe you can correct me if I'm wrong or Navbahar. I can't remember such a, an attack coming from Afghanistan uh, into Uzbekistan. And so what the Uzbek government was banking on in their strategy towards the Taliban was that the Taliban could provide order, could provide security, mm. could reduce the terrorist threat against Uzbekistan, could provide mm. um, access to trade and commerce in a way that, that was not feasible or possible during the U.S. presence. So to me, this is actually a big shot in the bow towards um, Uzbekistan's strategy towards Afghanistan. I think that that is actually the bigger target here, is thinking about what that strategy looks like in the long run. And mm. this really seems to be a big blow to that strategy. Mm. Yes, yeah, certainly. You know, the, those online messaging that you are referring to, and we are going to talk about that. I mean, certainly you know, the claimed attack by ISKP against Uzbekistan comes after all those flurry of uh, online threats and uh, kind of commentaries by ISIS, and particularly in Central Asian languages, in Tajik, in Uzbek, in text being written in Cyrillic, so which which also indicates that this is not for Uzbeks in Afghanistan or Tajiks in Afghanistan. Certainly, they are looking into this when they post those messages to their audience across the border in Central Asia. Certainly, there is a lot to talk about leading to this claimed attack. You know, I should say that, you know, in terms of, I, I didn't answer the question of, you know, the terms of what the border mm. looks like. Mm. You know, on the Afghan side, it's very sparse. Mm. It's desert on the Afghan side of this border, except for Hiraton, which is... You know, the port city, which, you know, is a very, I would call it a small town. Yeah. When you cross the, the bridge into Uzbekistan, it's a very, you know, irrigated, developed community, very densely populated. Yeah. And so I, what I think Nabohar says to me sort of resonates, if there were sort of an attack from the from the Afghan side, you, we would hear some kind of reporting about what this was, right? Everybody has cell phones now in, in Uzbekistan. People are reporting on these kinds of things. Something in inevitable would come out. So I think what's here is more significant, whether the physical attack happened, but the fact that they are demonstrating their willingness to do this in a very serious way, in a way that's very different from what was before. Bruce, uh, let me bring you in here. I guess it might also be sounding a little technical question here. Indeed, if this attack never happened, why would IS claim to have attacked Uzbekistan? I mean, how does it help? You know, obviously claiming that you're attacking Uzbekistan is an announcement that if nothing else, you you want to attack Uzbekistan and it's a target. Jennifer just mentioned that that was one of the shifts in this thing is that they specifically are talking about the Uzbekistan now, whereas they had that message wasn't clear. I mean, obviously, this is a stateless actor looking for an opportunity anywhere I can get it. But this to actually name Uzbekistan is a serious development in what's going on out there. There's no doubt about it. And by the way, I, you know, just to answer the question, ISKP hasn't claimed any attacks in Uzbekistan. They did in Tajikistan, but not Jennifer mentioned that, but not in uh, Uzbekistan. But there's some things here worth lining up and remembering too that that you know 
Termez, right? It's it's the biggest city right along that that part. I've been down there too, along the border down there. The, the, I suppose they could have tried to stage this attack anywhere they wanted to, but Termez was is obviously a high profile target in that area. So I guess that's why they wanted to pick that as their the area where they were taking this up. But we know at least from the Taliban deputy spokesman, Inamula. Saman Ghani yeah, is, is yeah. his name. He's the one that said, I got this from Gazeta Daruz, mm. by the way, too, but he said, yes, they did attack. And mm. yes, we arrested two or three of them. Yeah. Uh, they fired rockets. None of them got across the river. They landed in some, a couple of rockets landed in some ruins somewhere. But he mm. had this whole explanation for mm. what had happened. And they knew where, where they had launched the rockets from mm. and everything like that. Mm. So it does look like there was an attempt, anyway, to try to attack Uzbekistan. What I, what I think is fascinating about this is that, well, one, there was a meeting of uh, Taliban officials and Uzbek officials in Nabahar would probably remember this too, in Termez on April 12th to 14th. They were trying to figure out the railroad traffic. Mm-hmm. Now, Termez, of course, is really the main route to get into Afghanistan from anywhere in Central Asia, not just Uzbekistan. So, you know, they kind of sent a message right after the Taliban had a delegation there, and you would figure that security had been beefed up between April 12th and 14th so that nothing like this would happen. Um, you know, this group shows up right after that and launches an attack on the uh, in the area where the main route into Afghanistan is. Uzbekistan's response, if we're willing to believe the videos and, and some of the testimony that we've heard of sending warplanes up in the air and helicopters up in the air is also interesting too because if they did cross into Afghan territory, then there must have been a line of communication with the Taliban about this, right? That you won't just send your war airplanes and and helicopters across the border without letting the other side know that that's what you're doing. Or did the Taliban request it because they couldn't figure out where these guys were after they shot the rockets? Which speaks of a level of cooperation between Uzbekistan and the Taliban that we hadn't seen before. Yeah, we we are kind of, you know, talking about this in such a weak terms because if one side just keeps denying you know, there's uh, nothing else you could say other than trying to make sense of on logical grounds grounds. One logical ground that I would like to explore here is also, Lucas, maybe the question is for you. I mean, just questioning here the ISIS's logic here, in case if they fired a couple of rockets to Uzbekistan, whether the rockets reached to Uzbekistan or did not, that part I'm not clear about. But, you know, in case if you are not sure about whether these rockets are going to hit the, the intended target, why you would even fire? Because you are putting yourself in a position where all sort of groups, Taliban and others, are going to come after you. Well, first off, I'd like to give credit to my research colleague, mm-hmm. Ricardo Vallet, who has helped me with some of the recent research articles on these developing trends. In terms of symbolic value, their overall strategy includes a kinetic militant component as well as a media warfare component. They are interlinked. One of the objectives they're going for is to undermine regional confidence in the Taliban's ability to provide security. And when the Taliban took power in mid-August 2021, a lot of the talk was about if the Taliban would be able to prevent the Islamic State from uh, being able to use Afghan territory to conduct attacks against its neighbors. But if that uh, is if that's the case, Lucas, let me counter you a little bit here. So, I mean, they could find rockets which could indeed reach to Uzbekistan, indeed could hit those targets that they were intending for. Why they just went to this cheap thing that nobody knows where they, they went? Uh, well, taking it back to the symbolic value, in recent months you've seen the Islamic State branch in Afghanistan try to broaden its appeals to 
Uzbek ethnics and nationals. And it wants to, by striking Uzbekistan itself or just firing rockets in the direction and then making the claim even if they didn't reach, you could see the excited reaction in the Tajik and Uzbek language pro-ISKP telegram channels after the attack. And, for instance, you could see a, a media shift as well afterwards to this end. They put the attacker on the cover of their new magazine. They posted an official video celebrating the attack that was shared in all the Uzbek channels. So it, it's in part they want to recruit Uzbek ethnics and nationals. They want to build support amongst sympathetic elements. And they'd also like to incite attacks, not just direct them or launch them from Afghanistan. So this kind of feeds into this momentum that we've been seeing. Yeah, and can I jump in here just for, because I think this is a really important point. You know, I think we have to really consider what's going on inside uh, Afghanistan right now, especially with regards to the Taliban and how they're governing and especially how they're governing ethnic minorities. And so uh, earlier uh, this year in January, there was an uprising in Faryab province. Yeah. And uh, Bruce wrote about this. Yeah. There was an ethnic Uzbek commander. He was one of the few um, ethnic Uzbek Taliban commanders who yeah. had been brought into to the Taliban government. And he was arrested. He was taken to Mazar-e-Sharif. I'm not sure the fate of him uh, now, mm. but he was actually arrested on suspicion of involvement of the kidnapping of a young Turkmen boy. And the fate of this Turkmen boy is also a very interesting story. I feel yeah. like a book could be written about this yeah, yeah. Uh, Turkmen boy in mm. Balkh, yeah. who was actually just released a yeah. couple of weeks ago. Yeah. And uh, you know, there's something there's something going on. The Taliban, there were protests against the Taliban in Faryab. We're seeing increased attacks facing minorities. You mentioned what's going on with the Hazara community yes. inside of uh, Afghanistan right now. And so the Taliban are increasingly looking like a Pashtun movement. And they came to power on the promise of being pan-Islamic, that they would be inclusive of minorities. And that does not seem to be panning out at all. They made a lot of great promises you know, during the insurgency in the first few months um, when they were in power. And mm. I would interpret what ISK is doing right now, going, you know, speaking to the ethnic minority communities inside of Afghanistan by saying, look, the Taliban made all of these promises to you. You can't rely on them. But this also then allows ISK then to take leadership of this sort of global jihadi movement and makes the Taliban look like a, a petty nationalist movement in comparison. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that does. Uh, uh, I would also like to add, if you mm -hmm. look at the history of the Islamic State Khorasan province, mm -hmm. it actually has deep Uzbek roots because shortly after it was formed in 2014, 2015, ISKP actually subsumed the Islamic movement of Uzbekistan, or IMU, which was previously aligned with the Taliban, Al-Qaeda, the Turkestan Islamic Party, and so on. And um, some of the early scorn from pro-Islamic state Uzbek ethnics and nationals was actually the fact that upon allying with ISKP, the IMU was viciously, viciously hunted down with the Taliban and essentially decimated, at least to a considerable extent. And ISKP actually they exaggerate this event to make it include civilians as well. So they have not forgotten about this, and it's part of their organizational lore. And they, and in their recent propaganda, they've went back to the narratives of 
the Taliban oppressing Uzbeks and killing Uzbeks and Tajiks and others. That that's interesting what you say that Lucas. I mean you you kind of go uh, into details of that in your the diplomat uh, article. It sounds like they have clearly intensified their online campaign directed in Central Asia and also uh, apparently directed at the Taliban calling them not Islamic. I think that was my understanding from one of your uh, paragraphs and also you know being a, a kind of Pashtun centric uh, moment. You know what also tells me that like, I mean, then after this kind of attacks, yes, we heard Taliban spokesperson, deputy spokesperson say that they have arrested one or two people who might have been responsible for this attack. But that is just one element there. So the ISK claimed attacks have been happening all around Afghanistan recently, particularly directed at Hazara community there. I mean, I have not seen like kind of a full pledged Taliban operation to crack down against ISK, although all of their actions seems to be undermining Taliban's authority. So, I mean, that also kind of brings me to question where Taliban stands in this. Yeah, they say they are against any group using Afghan soil to attack any neighboring countries. But in the meantime, when you see their inaction, particularly in situations like this, that kind of makes me to question, you know, Taliban's position in that. But on the, on the other side also, you know, this attack happened and I'm sure the Taliban also aware of those the conversation taking place online that you were able to access uh, Lucas, that there has been flurry of online conversation campaign run by the ISK directed at the their potential audience uh, just across the border in Afghanistan. But let's also go into that, what they say in terms of what they claim it to have just done at the border with Uzbekistan and what the direction of their thinking might be going forward. So let's continue the debate talking about these and many other questions very shortly. First, let me recap the debate today on the Majlis podcast. I am joined by Lucas Weber, a researcher focused on geopolitics and violent non-state actors, and also a co-founder and editor of Militant Wire, Dr. Jennifer Murtadaswili, uh, associate professor at the University of Pittsburgh and the director of the Center for Governance and Markets, Nobahari Mahbuba, senior journalist with Voice of America's Uzbek Service, and Bruce Panier, the author of Radio Free the Liberties Central Asia in Focus Weekly Newsletter. I'm Mohammed Tahir, host of the and Radio Free the Liberties Media Manager here in Washington, D.C. And we are discussing the recent incidents at the Uzbek-Afghan borders. So let's switch uh, the conversation, Lucas, from uh, actual attacks to online uh, attacks and threats that we have been seeing for the past several uh, you know, months on the ISK-run online channel. So your article uh, was, in that uh, sense, eye-opening, uh, Lucas, on so many levels. So tell us, please, what you have been noticing on those channels and what does they tell us in terms of what they just claim to have done? You can see that ISKP is developing a kind of propaganda conceptualization to frame Uzbekistan, and they've been developing this. Recently, for instance, they accused the Uzbek government of being puppets of the United States who are conspiring through the provision of aid to Afghanistan and the rail project running from Uzbekistan into Afghanistan as a conspiracy to spread democracy. And they also accuse the Uzbekistan government of supporting and protecting the Taliban to use as a proxy force to fight the Islamic State in Afghanistan. 
So these are some of the narratives they've been developing. And with the momentum from this fresh attack, they, they just a couple of days ago in their flagship magazine, they promised future attacks against China, Uzbekistan, Iran, and, and many others. So you can see that they're trying to expand their operational and attack range. And a lot of people understandably think of ISKP as an Afghanistan-based branch, but it also operates in Pakistan as well, even though there's a Pakistan branch on its own. So it's already a transnational movement, and now they're attacking Uzbekistan. So these are two countries that they are now actively targeting, or else in the case of Uzbekistan, claiming to target. So with these statements, a lot of it is bluster, of course, but I think it's worth paying attention to what they're saying, because they seem to be making their intentions explicitly clear. But uh, talking of the intentions, from your at least from the your diplomat article, I mean, th- the whole discussion was seemed to be about Tajikistan. And now suddenly you say they are thinking about Uzbekistan. What I'm trying to say is, I mean, that the ideas that they are presenting, the discussion that they are having, what's the direction they are thinking about? So what, what you see coming next? What they said actually recently was they looked to, to destroy the borders in Central Asia, and they actually called the attack on Uzbekistan the opening act in the great jihad into Central Asia. And in Tajikistan, they've actually had a series of attacks. For instance, they clashed with border guards and police on the frontier with Tajikistan and Uzbekistan in November 2019. In 2018, a vehicle carrying Islamic State militants rammed into a group of foreign cyclists. And there's been two prison riots fueled by Islamic State militants as well. So there's a danger in Tajikistan as well, and they've been kind of applying the same kinds of Even though Tajikistan's policies towards the Taliban are a bit different, they've been developing a framework for them, too, and trying to stoke tensions and create problems for the Taliban with its neighbors. They see it as fertile soil. Fertile soil. Interesting. Jennifer, uh, or maybe Nobha, just feel free to jump in here. What, What I'm trying to point at here is, like, you know, what we learned from Lucas, and obviously we have access to all those online conversation chit chats that they are having about, you know, various countries like, you know, Tajikistan, Uzbekistan, even as far as thinking about China and others. I mean, Nobahar, how much of a threat ISK is seen when looked from Tashkent? Based on what I hear constantly uh, from the Uzbek officials and also other, you know, Uzbek experts, let's say, in Uzbekistan, specifically in Tashkent, they see them as a major threat. And I also see Tashkent developing a narrative um, to justify its uh, cooperation, its closeness, its friendship with the Taliban, using the the level of threat that comes from, let's say, terrorists in Afghanistan. They see, they watch them very vigilantly. They see their attempts to, you know, their social media propaganda as a way to validate themselves. They're very, uh, I would say, aware of their actions. And they, you know, they have tons of material that they have on them as well, which they don't necessarily share but they are concerned I, I sense this and they've been using this argument in their conversations with the Europeans with Americans basically to say that hey this is why we need to work with the Taliban this is why you need to help us guide them you know we have this channel with the with the Taliban let's forge this further and if we want to fight terrorism in Afghanistan and we must and there is a terrorism presence there clear evidence that we still have these guys there we need 
need to work together. And mm. this is why we need to establish, you need to establish a channel of communication with Kabul. That's interesting, you know, the way the Uzbek authorities, like, they are, they seem to be putting all the eggs on a Taliban's basket in terms of avoiding any threat that might be coming from ISIS to Uzbekistan or the it, other central region. This, this is their response to when, you know, we challenge them by saying, mm. hey, you, you aren't you taking a major mm. risk? Isn't this a major foreign policy gamble mm. that you're mm-hmm. doing with the Taliban? Why are you trusting them so much? And their response is, well, we don't have any other option. If we need to do something, you know, to secure our interests in Afghanistan, then we have to work with these guys because the other guys are those people, the, the terrorists, the, mm. the extremists. And they, I mean, I agree with Lucas that, you know, they see Islamic State Khorasan as an Uzbek terrorist movement. They don't say this specifically, but they know that they are trying to appeal specifically to the Uzbek communities in Afghanistan. Uzbek officials also know that there are many Uzbeks within that community that oppose the closeness of Tashkent and Kabul. Mm. And we hear from them as well. So we know that anti-Tashkent sentiment is growing uh, among the Uzbek communities. They're not happy with the way uh, Uzbekistan and, you know, Afghanistan's new leaders have been working together or at least seem to be really working you know very closely together so they see these terrorists they say as trying to invest in that Hmm. and and do this propaganda and what they call you know fake news yeah that's also interesting i guess if tashkent sees what we see things are not so straightforward in this conversation as well you know uh, in recent weeks we have seen a flurry of attacks uh, by isk against hazara minorities in afghanistan which if nothing else certainly questions the taliban as legitimacy as the ultimate rulers of the country. What I think is if that if the Taliban can't take care of those attacks, one should really question their ability to take care of the borders. But on the other hand, Uzbek authorities dealing with the Taliban is also interesting. I recall your story about Mullah Yaqub Nobahar, the Taliban defense minister's remarks earlier about the fate of those helicopters that were brought uh, by members of the Af- former Afghan government to Uzbekistan. Yaqub was almost seen threatening the Uzbek and Tajik authorities saying that don't test our patient and return those aircrafts back to Afghanistan. Meanwhile, Tashkent seems not on the same page. So the recent cross-border tension is happening when beneath the carpet, there seems to be a fundamental difference of opinion between Uzbek and the Taliban representatives, at least on those military equipments that Taliban think belongs to Afghanistan. I don't know what goes on when they meet face to face, but on the surface, it doesn't look like there is much of a friendship going on between Tashkent and Kabul. On top of that, the recent ISK-driven rhetoric certainly um, not helping. So, um, <laughs> you know, this is this is a part of what they call their candid conversations with the Taliban and honest conversations, and then Uzbekistan sort of you know defending its own interests and also its interests with with its other strategic partners. So this is where Tashkent is. Uh, we see them drawing a line, basically saying that no, the this, this equipment, the aircraft, belongs to the United States, and uh, it's up to them, you know, what to deal, how to deal with them. However, since they entered the Uzbek territory illegally, they crossed the border illegally, we have a right to investigate them and take them to our military court. So that is still being decided, by the way. But uh, from my interview with uh, Uzbekistan's top diplomat on Afghanistan, uh, Ismatullah Yergashev, I came out thinking that th- this is a done 
deal with Washington. Basically, the, hmm. the, 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 this case is closed as far as Tashkent is concerned. And uh, Irgashev also seemed to indicate that the, the position that I mentioned, uh, the, the Taliban position in my article, is something that we heard from them earlier this year. By now, Uzbeks tell me that this is not where the Taliban stands. They get it. By now, they understand that they are not going to get this aircraft, at least from Uzbekistan. And then the Pentagon also confirmed to us that they are in sync with this policy and that, yeah, it's true that both Uzbekistan and Tajikistan are not returning them to Afghanistan. So uh, the Taliban have not said anything about this lately. At least I haven't uh, seen anything. I know that there, there has been a lot of discussion of this lately in Afghan uh, media in general. But yeah, there are some elements I think within the Taliban who still are demanding, you know, the aircraft from from Uzbekistan and Tajikistan. But as far as Tashkent is concerned, they've explained it to, to Kabul. They get it. They know it. And, and Uzbekistan is pretty clear on this. Mm-hmm. OK, I know we are running out of the time. Just one question, maybe uh, Jennifer, Lucas or Bruce, anyone uh, of you in terms of the timing of this intensified conversation by ISIS. And in fact, if this attack has happened against Uzbekistan, does timing tell us anything? why this is happening now? Uh, You know, if we think about Afghanistan, we think about how this conflict has evolved over the past decades. It's the spring fighting season, right? So this also comes at a time where we typically see opposition to the ruling parties happen. And then it happens to be the case that the the government or the de facto authority that's sitting in Kabul is the Taliban. And so the Taliban are now trying to consolidate their authority. I think what we're seeing, you know, why is the timing key here is that when the Taliban came to power, they were promising a lot of things to a lot of different people, including neighbors. And I think what Uzbekistan, for example, did in its own foreign policy was really creative at the time. You know, it was looking at the Taliban as an alternative, not because it wanted the Taliban. I don't think any of the, you know, maybe with the exception of Pakistan, really wanted the Taliban in power. But they understood that the Afghanistan under the U.S., really created a lot of chaos. And if you're the neighboring countries, this was not sustainable. And so the Taliban became a promise of something else. What the Taliban have tried to do now is then consolidate power, behave like a government, figure out who's in charge, and they're dealing with their own internal factions. And I think one of the things that we're seeing is the Taliban, you know, as they try to consolidate that power, they are facing strife. How can you negotiate with, you know, Uzbekistan? They're a secular government. How does that look to other factions? How does it look to be to try to moderate so much? You're looking like a nationalist movement rather than a global uh, jihadi movement. Really questioning the Taliban's bona fides in, in terms of their own legitimacy. So, you know, there's no national resistance front. I mean, we're seeing it, it's really actually hard, increasingly hard to know what's going on inside of Afghanistan. The, the Tajik government supported the national resistance front of Ahmed Massoud. We're seeing increasing uh, attacks from that group, but hard to verify because, you know, this vibrant media that once existed inside of Afghanistan no longer is there. So it's hard to understand what's going on. But 
the Taliban are clearly trying to show that they're in charge, trying to promise all of this economic cooperation and so forth. And I think that Uzbekistan, despite I think this is a, a real hiccup in their strategy, but one of the things that I'm encouraged, if we look at Uzbek government strategy, is that they took a risk on the Taliban. And I think many of us were watching their engagement over the mm -hmm. years and saying this is, it was really kind of unusual, unexpected, a very a big change in what they had done previously. And if anything, I'm encouraged to see the Uzbek government experiment you know, experiment to try to find solutions in the region. I think this we should be encouraged because we're seeing Central Asian states take their own policies into their own hands and not seeing themselves as sort of pawns of great powers. There's a lot we can see variation in terms of how the different Central Asian states are responding to this. So certainly this is a, a hiccup for Uzbekistan, but I think that it shows a kind of agility that mm. we hadn't seen before in terms mm. of their foreign policy. Hiccup, yeah, of course. But also when I was asking question about the timing of all this, what I was also had in mind was while we see this attack, like in case of it happened and intensified online conversation on ISK channels about Central Asia. At the same time, intensified attacks within Afghanistan against the minority group. As a result of those attacks, Taliban's legitimacy is very much questioned I mean, in terms of their ability to run the country. So they are also putting Taliban in a, in a really tough Absolutely. spot. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So that's, I mean, the Taliban's legitimacy so, right here is really, I think, the big thing that that's at stake. And the ISK, by going after Uzbekistan, is really trying to drive a, a knife through this alliance that's formed between Uzbekistan and so forth. And and so, you know, can the Taliban be the guarantor of security mm. in Central Asia? I think many of us have big questions about this, mm. well, right? That, and, and that the Uzbeks are banking a lot on the Taliban's and Russia and others, mm. China, mm. right? It's not just Uzbekistan. So Uzbekistan's strategy here is really in line with what we're seeing with Iran even. Mm. It's a big gamble. And, mm. can the, and then can the Taliban actually control? And if they want to control, how can they do it if they're not willing to include others? Mm. And what are they doing to protect these minority groups? And it seems like mm. they're excluding them as well. And I think the biggest losers here are the, the, the minorities. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Quickly following up on that, maybe there is no connection, but I just wondered, uh, since the ISK's rhetoric against Central Asia and its attacks against minorities within Afghanistan seems to be happening in parallel, I wondered if there's any connection between the two. If so, what does that tell us in terms of what next? Absolutely. What they're doing is they're differentiating themselves, right? So, okay, the Taliban are now in power, the, ta the Taliban are imposing Islamic rule, and we can see how the Taliban are doing this. They they promised a lot, they said they'd keep the girls' schools open, they're not doing that. It's forcing the Taliban to be much more extreme, right? And what these attacks are doing is it's really, really undermining the Taliban's own claim to legitimacy. Because they cannot provide security, full stop. They are not protecting minorities as they said they would. And then then the ISK is saying, well, why are you protecting these minorities who are not Sunni? Isn't this your whole ideology to begin with? So it's actually exposing the Taliban as, you know, I don't want to use the word moderates, but what they're trying to do is force the Taliban's hand to become much more extreme in this regard. It's pulling them into this direction. It's a competition for the fringes of the ideology. And what does... 
okay, I go think ahead. also uh, in terms of the international dimension, hmm. ISKP would like to disrupt, prevent, and undermine anything that would strengthen the Taliban's position. So they're created by launching targeted attacks inside the country and outside the country. They're creating a chill effect as the Taliban really looks for foreign investment. Mm-hmm. And this just creates too much risk to, to make any of these projects feasible. And that means a lot for Central Asia. I mean, Uzbekistan has been banking and also to some extent Turkmenistan, like, they, you know, they have a dream pipeline, which ideally would flow Turkmen gas through Afghanistan to Pakistan, India. So what does that situation means for Central Asia, Bruce Panier, then? You know, this, this is the alarming thing is that the ISK seems to be, be like exploiting some of the weak points in the Taliban's control over the country and, and certainly minorities, not just the Hazaras, but we've probably all seen these videos from right after the Taliban came to power of what some of the Pushtun Taliban fighters were doing to local communities in northern Afghanistan, Turkmen and Uzbek communities. Uh, people were being evicted from their lands. Their herds were being seized by the Pushtuns. We know that ethnic Tajik communities had problems with the Pushtun Taliban. So it's clear that, you know, as, as this whole conversation has been about, that what ISKP is doing now is appealing to the, the downtrodden minorities that are the Central Asian groups. We know the Turkmen, the Uzbeks, the, the Tajiks, and, and trying to get a support base going from that. What, what's interesting, though, is how the, as this evolves, they're not only working on the um, local communities, the indigenous Turkmen, Uzbeks, and, and Tajiks that are there, but we got to remember there's there's a lot of foreign fighters that are from Uzbekistan and from Tajikistan, Jamayat Ansarullah. Lucas mentioned the Islamic movement of Uzbekistan, and it's true that there was an element that was in the Islamic State under Usman Ghazi that swore allegiance to the Islamic State, and, and most of them were wiped out in Zabul, or a lot of them were annihilated when they went up to fight in Herat against the Taliban, but the, the ones that survived are scattered all across northern Afghanistan. There was another group that left Pakistan before that of IMU from Waziristan after they staged the attack on the Karachi airport in 2014. Pakistan launched its military operation into the tribal areas and a, a large group of IMU left then. Some of them joined with Jamaat Ansarullah, some of them joined with the Taliban. But in fact, these are ethnic Uzbeks and, and there's ethnic Tajiks that are from Uzbekistan and from Tajikistan. And as the conflict starts to evolve between the Pushtun Taliban and the ethnic minority groups in northern Afghanistan, these fighters who are allied to the Taliban right now are going to have their own choices to make about what they're going to do. And I think ISK is trying to appeal to them, too, of saying, look, you know, one, the Taliban are heretics. Two, the, these are Tajiks and Uzbeks who are being exploited by Pushtuns, and you guys are Tajiks and Uzbeks, too. They're, they're trying to recruit from them. And the more local recruits they find from those communities, the more suspicion the Taliban will have from on everybody that's mm-hmm. ethnic Tajik, mm-hmm. Uzbek, whatever. So you can see where this thing is going to mushroom and get much more complicated mm-hmm. and, and uh, intense in the yeah. weeks you know, to come. You know, we have, we and have... this is also great PR, by the way, because mm-hmm. if we if we think about what was going on, you know, in winter of last year, a year ago, mm-hmm. we began to see, you know, touched fighters from Tajikistan coming from Tajikistan, entering Afghanistan, controlling districts, I mean, under the United States, when the U.S. was there. And, uh, you know, this fluidity of the border, especially the Tajik border, this is really great PR. So to me, you know, the bottom line is whether or not this attack occurred or not, it's getting a lot of play. And it's showing that that ISK can stand up not only to the Taliban, Mm -hmm. but also to these regional governments. Mm -hmm. 
very interesting. You know, there we have another conversation looking into Pakistan and Afghanistan, in which in the last episode we had uh, Tamim Asay, who's the who was the former deputy defense minister of Afghanistan. So what what his reading was in terms of you know what ISK has intensified doing recently is that they want to you know I'm just quoting him that ISK wants to create chaos internally and also externally, and then they will be banking on leveraging from that situation to position themselves. So I guess that's a dangerous route that uh, we are uh, looking at. Uh, just a final thought, maybe from Lucas, and then with that, we are going to conclude the conversation since you have been researching about all those online activities that ISK was engaged recently. So keeping that in mind, so what are the areas, uh, Lucas, you will be looking at in terms of what comes next? I'm going to look for the continued internationalization of ISKAP's scope, and this includes translating materials into uh, more languages, publishing original materials in more languages, and basically the the increased scope of their operations to include either attacking their neighbors or attacking the interests of countries like China or Uzbekistan or Russia, whoever internally. Very interesting point there. Maybe, Bruce, uh, you know, we did not have the chance to, to hear uh, your thoughts on so many other questions I just skipped. So, uh, Bruce, perhaps uh, let's end it with you. So where uh, your eyes are going to be to determine where they are going to take this conversation from here, I mean the ISK, uh, with regards to Central well, Asia? Well, you know, see if they try to claim another attack on Central mm-hmm. Asia. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I mean, the, ta- the Taliban actually have been saying for weeks that the I- ISKP is not a threat. Mm. You know, that they took care of them and they're, they're, this isn't a threat anymore. So the attacks showed that, that the, the Taliban are, are now are wrong, lying again mm-hmm. about that whole thing. If they if they actually launched an attack that some rockets that went into Tajikistan or went into Uzbekistan, mm-hmm. it would really shatter the whole myth. I mean, you mm-hmm. know, as we've heard, the promise is we won't let any group use Afghan territory right. to attack Afghanistan's neighbors. But but in fact, that just happened. It mm-hmm. was because the attack failed that, that it's not a bigger issue than it is. But if the, one of these rockets does land, land on the other side of the border, or if some small group of militants make their way across and set off a bomb somewhere or something mm-hmm. like that, then really this one of the linchpins of this whole understanding between Uzbekistan and the other Central Asian states with the Taliban is like removed. Mm-hmm. Because then it's clear that, that no matter what guarantees the Taliban give, even with good intentions, the fact is you know, can't fulfill any of this stuff. So I would look to see if they try to launch another attack in, on Central Asia, especially because who's going to come to Central Asia's help if this gets to be a big issue? Oh. You know, Russia's occupied, forget it. China has its own relations with the Taliban. Mm. They don't want to get mm. involved in, in that kind of those politics along the border. So this is really a Central Asia all by themselves, which is probably better. Ready. And they'll be able to come to some deal. Uh, but but still, um, you know, this is one of those situations where they're really going to have to figure it out by themselves because nobody else is going to help, you know, Uzbekistan or, mm. or mm. Tajikistan, not, not in a huge way, certainly sending troops if, if something strange happens and things the situation gets gets much worse that is very important point Bruce so that I also kind of raises I know the question I wanted to conclude the conversation here but let's make Jennifer your point a last point here so in response to the situation Jennifer what do you like to see Central Asian authorities doing going forward well I mean this is a real opportunity for them mm. they've put their eggs in, in the in the 
Taliban basket. But we can also see, I mean, this is what's it's fascinating to watch what's going on in Central Asia right now with the de-Americanization of the region mm. is that you're seeing Central Asian states, you know, so much of this rhetoric that we hear about the new great game and Russia and China is so irrelevant because you're seeing these states develop their own foreign policies, develop their own agencies, develop their own alliances. And it's really fascinating to watch. This could actually drive the Uzbeks closer to the United States in some ways. You know, I think Bruce hit the nail on the head that the Taliban have promised that no, you know, terrorist attacks would be launched into neighboring states from Afghanistan. And if that has just happened, that is a huge violation of that promise. What does that tell us? Well, you know, the the, the Russians have that military base forever in, in, in Tajikistan. What is the status of those troops? I haven't seen much reporting. Are, are they all still there? What about all of that equipment? Does Russia need that equipment? Russia's attention is clearly somewhere else right now. Uh, this really creates a real opening either for China or the United States. And I would suspect, um, yes, China has its own relationship. And China, you know, much has been made of China's desire, you know, for investment and so forth. And I think all of that is really premature. Everyone is really focused on security issues and seeing that the Taliban can provide security. You know, nobody wants ISK. People want the Taliban to succeed because they there is a promise that they can provide this monopoly on violence. They have not been able to do it. And I think that's going to, you know, increase support for a kind of resistance, an alternative that's not the Taliban, rather than, I think, doubling down on the Taliban. That's I'm sort of speculating, but it gives, you know, this is how we could begin to see the Uzbeks begin to support the NRF, for example. I still think we're a ways off from that, but this is sort of what I'm watching on the horizon. What is the relationship between the United States? Interesting. Unfortunately, unfortunately, we have to conclude the conversation here, but it's been a fascinating conversation. Thank you, Dr. Jennifer Murtzashvili, Associate Professor at the University of Pittsburgh. Also, big thanks to Lucas Weber, a researcher focused on geopolitics and violent non-state actors and co-founder and editor of Militant Wire. Nobahar Imamova, senior journalist with the uh, Voice of America's Uzbek Service, and Bruce Panier, the author of Radio Free of Radio Liberties, Central Asia in Focus weekly newsletter. Thank you very much, colleagues, for joining us today. And this is from me, Mohammed Tahir, Radio Free of Radio Liberties media manager and host of the Majlis podcast here in Washington, D.C. Until next week, bye-bye.